0: If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll get there in just a moment. We've been looking over the last number of months at the life of David, how David is a man after God's own heart, and up to this moment, David's been pretty admirable. But today, we're going to see that David had his problems, just like us, as Patty's already helped us see. David sent as a fun experiment and really a way to develop our emerging leaders. I, during this series, asked three of our younger leaders to join me at different points and uh, to co-share with me on three different messages. So my daughter, Emily, reap, shared with us when we spoke about David and Abigail And then Joey Johnson shared with us when we spoke about David and Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant uh, coming and being brought up to Jerusalem. And today, Joey's wife, Molly, is gonna be sharing with us as we look at the story of David and Bathsheba. Second Samuel, chapter 11 and verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. A lot can go wrong when you're not where you're supposed to be. When you find yourself in a place that God didn't mean for you to be, things can go wrong real quick. You take a little staycation from war, to decompress, to rejuvenate, to chill, spend your days lying in bed, taking strolls around your palace. But one day from the rooftop, you see a beautiful woman bathing, and it gets your attention. And your attention grows to fixation, and your lust is ignited. She's so beautiful that you decide to have her. You're a king. You can have anybody you want. You summon her to your palace and then to your bedroom where you sleep with her even though she, you know that she's married to Uriah. Uriah is not an anonymous figure to you. Actually, the last chapter of 2 Samuel tells us that Uriah was one of David's mighty men. David knew Uriah by name. And even though this one is married to him, one of your own fighting men, who's at that very moment fighting for you while you violate his wife. But your king... Nobody's gonna find out. And if they do, they won't cross you. Uriah doesn't even know or have to know. And if she talks, who would take her words over yours? You're the king. But when she comes up pregnant with your child, you have to move quickly to cover your tracks. And so you send for Uriah to come That way, it'll look like he got her pregnant. But in stark contrast to your own dishonor, Uriah acts honorably. And he's difficult to manipulate. He's not going to be a pawn in your chess game. And when your plan doesn't work, you panic and arrange for his death on the battlefield. So there... Everything's taken care of. It's all handled. You got what you wanted without too much damage. Only one woman had to be dishonored and discredited. Only one general had to be implicated. Only one man had to die. Now you can take Bathsheba as your wife something you didn't really intend to do in the first place because she returned home pretty quickly. But now, nobody's worse for the wear, everything's cool. You know, it's crazy to me, and probably to you, just how far we'll go to rationalize or justify our own sin. All of us do it, I couldn't help myself. I'm human, I deserve to be happy, don't I? God understands, he he made me this way. Nobody's perfect. If it doesn't hurt anyone, what's the problem? We're two consenting adults. Eugene Peterson notes in his book, Leaping Over the Wall, that the narrator repeatedly uses one single word throughout this story, and it helps us understand David's root problem. This one little word is the word sent, S-E-N-T, sent, and it's used several times as David's love and obedience for the Lord is degraded into calculation and cruelty to others. In verse 1 of chapter 11, David sent Joab when it was David that should have been going. In verse 3, David sent to inquire of Bathsheba, her identity. In verse 4, the plot thickens as David sends for her. In verse 6, he sent word to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, sent Uriah to David. And after David had covered everything up, he sent once again for Bathsheba and married her. Peterson writes, in the final and decisive use of the send in this story, God's sovereignty comes into play. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And that's the end of David's detour into playing God with people's lives. God and only God is truly sovereign. The idea that we can do the sending and not wait for God to do the sending tells us that we all too often are in David's shoes and not responding to what God desires. As much as David tried to play God in all of his sending, it's his forceful action of taking that sends chills up and down my spine. Look at verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. Do you feel the possession in that? something that did not belong to him, but he took it. And she came to him, she didn't have much choice. He's the king. And he lay with her. This is not merely an act between two consenting adults. A lot of people would like to see Bathsheba as the doer of evil here, that she had seduced him. But never once is Bathsheba called out for sin in this story. When Nathan calls out David later, he doesn't call out Bathsheba. When God called out Eve in the garden, he also called out Adam. But in this case, Bathsheba is never smeared. In fact, when he is referred, she is referred to, she is still referred to as Uriah's wife. And what's really unfortunate is that that the Bible is full of these kinds of sin stories. I guess it's unfortunate. On the other hand, I guess we're in good company. We're all sinners in need of grace. There are always examples in our life, in this world today, with our politics, in our culture, and in the Bible, where powerful people see what they want, And take it. In Genesis 34, Shechem saw what he wanted in Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. So the Bible says he took her and lay with her. And then in Genesis 38, Jacob's son Judah saw what he wanted in a Canaanite woman. So he took her and forced her to become his wife. In Joshua 7, Achan saw the forbidden spoils of war, something God forbade them to take. Yet he coveted in his heart and he took it. And Samson did virtually the same thing in Judges. And don't forget the garden where Eve saw the forbidden fruit, desired it, and took it. It's a vile pattern that we all find ourselves in. We see what we want, And we think it won't hurt anybody and we take it. That's what David did. It may not have been that he was physically violent. It may simply have been that his power was the only thing that was wielded. Either way, David took her. Many years earlier, the prophet Samuel warned the people of Israel about so desperately wanting a king just like all the other nations had. They pined after one. They begged for one. It grieved God. It grieved Samuel the prophet. But they wanted a king. And Samuel's words to the Israelites was, that sort of king will take everything from you. In 1 Samuel 8, you can read it for yourself. He said, that sort of king will take your sons and make them fight his wars. That sort of king will take your daughters and make them his slaves. That sort of king will take the best of your fields and take a tenth of everything you have and he'll do with it whatever he chooses. But we thought David was different. He had for so long... Refused to take. He didn't take power from Saul. He waited patiently for God to fulfill his promise. But now something has changed. And David takes what is not his. He takes Bathsheba and his heart for God, which has been so beautifully displayed in earlier days, is overtaken by a very different spirit. Look at how chapter 11 ends, verse 27. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Of course, the story's not over. Next chapter, verse one. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it, brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. I would imagine you could have cut the tension with a knife. Nathan continued, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little... I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son for you did in secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son.
1: No one needs another sin story. We don't need another story where our heroes fail, where the greats choose out of being far less than good. What we need are God's stories. We need to know that despite the mess we made when we weren't in his will, God in his magnificence in His persistent in his purposes. Er, God in his magnificence is persistent in his purposes. We need to know that God in his kindness, in his mercy, knows how to clean us up, heal our hurts, and reposition us for the purposes to which we were made for in the first place. Jumping back into our story. The Lord has reminded David of all that he has done and warns him of what he is about to do. Nathan has delivered his word. Calamity will be brought because of David's sin has to be dealt with. It's hard to imagine that this is the high point for David, but even so, there is something so potent about David's response to God. David is a king, a strong king. He could have thrown Nathan out for so forwardly confronting his sin, for speaking calamity on his household. It's easy to imagine Saul may have thrown Nathan out. He may have gone and found someone that was saying what he wanted to hear. It's even tempting to compare David's sin to Saul's and think that on the scale of bad to really bad, they're not that different. But David, though he had sinned, is a man after God's own heart. And Saul's heart was gone from the Lord. And there is a difference. Because David, when approached by Nathan and confronted with the the word of God, responds simply, powerfully, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, we see David's response in more words, a repentant David, a sorrowful David, a David whose heart, though sinful, is not withdrawn from the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." I have sinned against the Lord. It's a response simple in words, but not in the kingdom realities that I suspect David has touched before. David, who has the Lord's anointing, who has slayed giants in his name, who has reunited kingdoms in his name, knows the distance that this sin has put between David and his just king. I have sinned against the Lord. It's a breath of life. It's humbling. It reminds me that the Lord is relational and deals with us in the realities of where we are. There are many times that I know that I have messed up, that I didn't choose his will, that I fell short. Whatever you may call it, I have I have believed that falling short means that I can't come close to him. Instead, I distance myself, and I try to hold the mess close to the vest, thinking that there may be a way that I can cover it up or fix it before the Lord sees, which is where the real fault lies. In those moments, it would save me instead to stop, go back to his presence, lay my sin down, and acknowledge that I have sinned against you, Lord, my perfect King, my just Father. And it would have saved me because I would have found grace. I would have found mercy. I would have found favor because I would have found him. And it would have saved me from being separated by sin to my wonderful counselor who who is not surprised and who knows how to clean up my mess. In response to David, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights laying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and would not eat with them. So the Lord has taken away David's sin and is now about to take away his son. The Lord has made it very clear to David what will happen, but it doesn't stop David from responding. He pleads and he fasts. I just imagine David, a desperate father and a forgiven son, begging the Lord for it to go a different way. David, who knows what the Lord has said, has certainly what his elders (laughs) have pointed out and believed is an unusual response. I don't think there's any guile to it. I don't think that David's disobedient or just didn't hear Nathan's word. I actually find it quite romantic, the way David continues to go to the Lord. He fasts, he prays, he never gets up from the ground. And I believe that David, having his sin taken from him, has gone back to his rightful position before the Lord. And even still, He was never scared to ask the Lord for the child's life anyway. He wasn't deterred from being close. He didn't continue to choose a way. He didn't need time to deal with his mess first. David didn't wait for the Lord to take the child either, like the Lord said he would do. David went back to the Lord, positioned himself rightly, and asked anyway. And I love that I could have that with the Lord too that I wouldn't spend time grappling with shame or fear or, or any of those other things. The Lord asks the same of me, that I would repent of my sins and just come close again. So on the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. He ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answers, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David comes close to the Lord, and the Lord takes the child's life. And upon hearing the news, he cleans himself up, goes to worship, and returns home to break fast, having received his answer from the Lord. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. Jedidiah meaning beloved by the Lord. The purposes of the Lord are eternal. That means that they don't function within the bounds of time that we use to linearize our lives. That also means that the purposes of God are not diminished or deterred by our mess. God is eternal. He sees farther back, further forward, deeper and wider than we get to. The Lord made a covenant with David back in 2 Samuel 7, if you remember the story. When David was trying to build God a house, the Lord said, paraphrasing of course, don't build me a house. Here is all that I intend to build for you, David, instead. God's covenant that he made with David promised that David would bear a child from his own body that would build a house for the Lord's name. God promises to establish his kingdom, to take the son as a son of his own, to be his father. He promises that his love will not leave. These are no small promises, and this covenant was formed because of the Lord's purposes. That offspring of David's own body, who the Lord raises up, is first King Solomon, said to be among the wisest of any king. Solomon, who was born of David and Bathsheba, who was the child who came of a marriage that displeased the Lord. That offspring that did have offspring that did, of course, bear Jesus into the world. Jesus, our Savior, who made sure David's house and David's kingdom would forever be before the Lord. The purposes of the Lord are eternal and persistent and not at all dependent on David's abilities or David's strengths or David's thoughts. The purposes of the Lord are eternal and persistent and not at all dependent on my abilities or my strengths or my thoughts. The purposes of the Lord persisted even when David made a huge mess of things. And the purposes of the Lord will persist even if I make a huge mess of things. And thank God, because I have sin stories, I have grabbed at position or power or strength that was not mine. I have sinned against God, and I needed and will need him to stop me amidst my mess, take away my sin, and reposition me for his purposes that have had and will have an eternal hold on me every breath I breathe.
0: The best news about all of this is that our sin stories are no match for God's grace story. That his story of grace and mercy will overcome our sin. Peter read earlier this morning during our time of worship, Psalm 32, And if you want to turn there with me, I'd like to just draw your attention to this again. Psalm 32 in verse 1, this is a psalm of David's. And most think that this is referring to this very episode in David's life. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent and he did my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up is by the heat. Of summer. When we're in sin, His heavy hand is our best advantage. When you feel the conviction of the Spirit addressing you in your silence surrounding your sin, when you feel His hand upon your shoulder, it's not to crush you, it's to turn you. It's to heal you, it's to restore you, and it's to use you. David says in verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not count my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Molly mentioned Psalm 51, which is also a psalm that is specifically after he's been caught and he calls upon the Lord for restoration. And to add just a few more verses from that psalm, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit and then I will teach other transgressors your ways because he's a transgressor and sinners will return to you. As serious as all of this is and it is, as permanent as it was for Uriah, and the scarring that it did to Bathsheba, and the consequences it had for David's family and descendants. His sin was not too great for God to deal with. And we know that the sin sacrifice that was made in Jesus Christ is for all our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The sin that you and I have to our count, the sin that we will have in the future even, he took care of it while hanging on the cross and he shed his blood that you and I could walk holy before him. God can deal with your sin. So as serious as all this is, I'm grateful that David knew where to go. I'm grateful that David didn't banish Nathan and didn't get his back up against the Lord like his predecessor did. I'm glad that he went back to God and that's where we should go. We must all go to his presence where we can find clean hearts and a renewed right spirit within us. We must fall upon his mercy that he would not take his spirit from us. And there we can find the joy of our salvation being restored. And we're upheld by a willing spirit. And then we will find his purpose being restored to teach transgressors his ways and that sinners may return to him. Would you bow your head? Lord, when we look at our own failures, shortcomings, where we've missed the mark, where we've seen something that we want and we've taken it for ourselves, where we've piously set around and sent others to serve us rather than waiting for you to be served, where we've fallen so far and done so much damage When we see the seriousness of that sin package we hold in our hands, it can be overwhelming to us. Where do we turn? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Our hands aren't clean. The weight we carry is burdened down with vile, disgusting rebellion, sinfulness, pride, arrogance, unbelief, lack of trust. Who can ascend? But we're grateful that that's not the end of the story. We're grateful that our lives don't have to end in sin. That because of what you've done, our sin stories can be washed clean in your grace story. I pray for anyone here today, for all of us, Lord that might have hidden sin in our lives that we think we got away with. Where we might be staying in the dark rather than being in the light as you were in the light. Lord, forgive us for that. We take that out of those hidden places, those vaults that we've stashed it away and closed the door. We bring it out into the light, Lord we ask you to forgive us and create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Then will we teach others your ways. Sinners will be converted unto you. Lord, as we take that, that package out of those hidden places, Lord, if you're requiring of us more, let us lay prostrate before you and hear what it requires. Lord, there may be others we have to go to and confess our sin. There may be restoration that is required in order for us to bring healing. There may be reconciliation that we have to enact. Whatever it is, Lord, This sin is too burdensome for us to carry anymore. It's too heavy. It's done too much damage already. So help us walk in your forgiveness, in your wholeness, in your healing, in your restoration, in your power. I pray for anyone here that's in that category, Lord. I don't wanna draw them out. I don't want to point my finger and say, you're the man, you're the woman, but Lord, your spirit is bringing conviction. So help us to respond to you, I pray. And Lord, I pray that you would make us messengers of your reconciliation to a world that is dying and broken and sin heavy. They're full of sin stories everywhere we see. Make us those who can message the power of God to set you free, to make you whole, and to bring you new life. Then will we teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will find you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.